Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Where Are You? by Pastor Sean Wood. I want to tell you a story about uh, three swimmers. There were three guys that decided they were going to swim from the east coast of Australia to New Zealand. I know, right? Who'd want to go to New Zealand, right? I know, but... <clears throat> But they decided they're going to swim from the east coast of Australia to, to New Zealand. The first guy, he couldn't swim at all. He'd never, he'd never really swam a stroke in his life. And the second guy, he was a reasonably moderate swimmer. He could swim to some degree. And of course, the third one was, he, this guy was an Olympic marathon swimmer. And they all set out to make their way to New Zealand. First guy gets about 50 metres, <laughs> completely inundated, he sinks to the bottom and he drowns. <laughs> Next guy, he gets, hold your horses here, he gets to two kilometres offshore. But the same thing happens to him. He, he's inundated, he, he's exhausted, he sinks to the bottom and he drowns. The last guy, the marathon swimmer, <laughs> he gets about 20 kilometres offshore. But he still drowns and sinks to the bottom. And Paul is now going to He's reached the plateau of his argument. And the argument is this. Every single person is like them swimmers. You can't make New Zealand on your own. Every single person is under sin. That's what Paul's going to tell us in a moment in in Romans chapter 3. He's going to say every single one of you are under sin. And it doesn't matter how moral you think you are or how good a person you are. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. None of that actually matters. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're never going to make New Zealand. That's what Paul wants everybody to know. Here's the good news of the gospel. There isn't a person on the planet that can make the the way to New Zealand on their own. The good news of the gospel is God built a bridge. One way bridge that takes you to New Zealand. So many of us get halfway across that bridge and think, you know what? I can take it from here, God. I'll jump off and swim the rest of the way. The fact of the matter is you are still not going to make New Zealand. The word sin, today I want to have a look at what does it mean? What does the word sin mean? How does it happen? What can we do about it? Because the number one thing right now that is keeping every person in this room at distance from God is sin. Make no mistakes about that. The level of sin in your heart is what keeps us from the presence of God. What can we do about it? We're going to have a look at that. Today, today I want to talk about where are you? If you can meet me in Romans 3, we're going to go to Genesis 3 in a moment and we'll answer that question. God asked Adam this question and I believe that God would be asking everybody in the room today this question, where are you? Great answer. Let's come to Romans chapter 3. This Let's start in verse 9 because the first eight verses, Paul has a little Q&A session with himself. He asks himself a few questions. He gives himself a few answers. It's, it's not only the first sign of madness, it's fully entrenched for Paul. Now he's answering his own questions. Verse 9, by the way, in Acts, the Roman governor said that Paul was mad. Verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. This is the argument that Paul has been making through uh, chapter 1 and through chapter 2. He says, no, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
And that word sin means to miss the mark. It means to think you can make it to New Zealand on your own, but you miss the mark. That's why God needed to build a bridge. We are all under sin, says Paul. He goes on and he's going to make an argument in a moment that exposes the condition. But this under sin today is what we see. Sin has become a word that is dirty. If, if you walk outside these doors and you say to somebody the word sin, it's, it's not something that's compatible. We, ha- we live in a culture and a society that has watered down sin. We've made morality something that is subjective, not objective. And what that means is, you know, what is true for you is true for you. No, it's not. We're going to have a look at that today. Truth isn't what you want it to be. Truth can't be changed. Truth is what it is. We'll have a look at that in a moment. People say, if what is sin for you is, is acceptable for me. And if, and if that's wrong for you, you rock your own boat. But for me, uh, this is the way I'm going. That's, that's a subjective morality. The problem we have in today's culture is there is a lack of crisis. But the gospel presents a crisis. It's like the prodigal son in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. He was going about living his life until he had a crisis. And then Luke chapter 15 tells us that he came to himself and says, I'm going to go home. Paul goes on and says, none, keep reading for it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. Not even you Jews who wear your fancy clothes, memorised half the Torah, think you're all very spiritual. You go to the temple every week, you, you do all the right things, but inside there's no inward revolution. That's what we looked at last week. We looked at the fact that uh, Christianity is not about what happens on the outside, it's about an inside revolution. You can have all the faith in Christianity and have no faith in Christ. Last week we had a look at circumcision, which is an outward expression for the Jews of an inward revolution. And congratulations to those who got baptised last Sunday afternoon. You gave an outward sign of an inward revolution. Exactly the same thing. It is a testimony. This is what God has done on the inside of my heart. And so now I go through this symbolism. Nobody seeks God. Uh, we, uh, we can place a charge even on the church here because so often I hear in church circles, we want to see the power of God. We want the supernatural. We want God to move in power. Uh, here's, here's how to operate in the supernatural, friends. Get out of the natural. Get out of the limitations of the natural. Stop, stop putting boundaries on God. Peter was still standing in a boat. He went from standing in a boat to walking on the water, but he got out of the natural limitations. Oh, hang on, pastor. I, I like to sleep in. We all like to sleep in. I, I like to go to... I don't care whether you have to stay up later, whether you have to get up earlier, do something with your calendar, but make room for God. We live in a society that's looking for leadership. We're living in a culture today that actually wants, no matter how much they tell you they hate you, they actually want people to stand up and say, this is the way. They hated Jesus. Except the tax collectors and the sinners. Heaven will be full of tax collectors and sinners. 
And hell will be full of Pharisees wearing their nice robes. Hallelujah, praise God. We come down to there is no fear of God. Paul makes the charge, there's no fear of God, no respect of God, no reverence for God. We live in a society today that has no respect for God. They even think it is okay to use the name of our Saviour as a swear word. There is no fear of God. Verses 19 and 20 say this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is where Paul's been going the whole time. You've got no wriggle worm, you've got no back doors, you're all accountable before God and you've got to do something about it. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. In his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You ever wondered why God calls Moses and doesn't just send Jesus? Why not just send Jesus right there and then? Why not send the Messiah? Why not enact the plan of redemption? Why go through the process? Why? Because through the knowledge of the law comes a knowledge of sin. God is exposing us and putting us in a point where we have a crisis. The law serves two main purposes. First one, it reveals sin in mankind. Second one, it lets everybody know you can't save yourself. And so today I want to answer the question, what is sin? Where did it come from? What's it all about? Now, one of the one of the key principles of biblical interpretation is if you want to know what a word means, you go to the place of first mention. It's one of the, one of the interpretation principles. And the place of first mention is actually Genesis 4. That's where the word is first used. But the first time we see sin is Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, the really, really interesting verse, this one, God comes to Cain in verse 7 and says, sin is crouching at your door and you have to have mastery over it. Today, we're going to see that, and Romans will continue to make the argument by the time we get to chapter 6, that you are under the influence of who you allow yourself to be under the influence of. What is sin? Let's, let's begin with Genesis chapter 3. But before we get there, what's just happened? Imagine with me for a moment. God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created all the plants, separated the continents. He's, he, he's created the animals. And then he does something to man that he hasn't done yet. He breathes life into him. He hasn't done that to anything yet. He hasn't done that to anything else in creation. Very, very interesting. God breathes into the nostrils of Adam. Imagine being Adam. Imagine, just stop for a moment and imagine if you can, opening your eyes and there's the creator of the universe who's just breathed into your nostrils. Imagine that. Imagine being so close to God that he comes down every day and walks with you in the garden. Wow. What? That's where they're at in chapter 2. God said it's not good for, be, for man to be alone. Why? He can't cook. So let's get... <laughs> We're going to need that back door at the top of the list, time. <laughs> I'm going to need an escape route before too long. He can't clean either, I know. I was going to mention that. So, of course, we see the first wedding at the end of chapter 2. Then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And men be very, very slow, by the way, men, to blame any of what just happens now on the lady. 
Be very, very careful where you go with that. Verse 1, if we can. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now you can talk symbolism with serpent, snakes, whatever you like. The matter I want to get to at the moment is this. There's a serpent in the technology, by the look of it. The first thing that we see is that evil comes objectively from the outside. Now, this is not a question for this morning, but it's a question we actually need to answer in one of our Invite Sundays. Uh, Is, if God is so good and so loving and so kind, why did God even let evil into the world? And I want to press a pause button for a moment, because what we're going to see is uh, God gives man a choice. And I want to ask everybody in this room, who let what into where? All God did was give us a choice. And before we go any further, everyone thinks that the biggest mistake Eve made was when she ate of the apple. <laughs> Long before that, Eve made a monumental mistake. And I wonder if you can pick it up for me as we're moving along. Let's, let's move along to <clears throat> what happens next. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here's a tactic that hasn't ceased in thousands of years. He says, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say the ploy of the enemy right from the beginning has been, I want to twist God's word. I want you to question God's word. And sin, if you could sum it up in one sentence, is us shifting our trust and reliance from God. Because that's what's about to happen now. The enemy's like, did God actually say? Nothing's changed in thousands of years. I'm going to bring it home in a minute, but let's go outside the doors for a moment. Did God actually say that, that marriage is between a man and a woman? Yes, he did. Did God actually say that he's the instigator of life and to leave it alone? Yes, he did. Did God actually create them male and female? Yes, he did. United Nations last count recognised 32 different genders. Friends, if I had a dollar for every gender there is, I'd still only have two dollars. Did God actually say that I identify as a woman today? No, he did not. God created them male and female. Anything outside of that is mental illness and you need help. Because it's breaking the natural order that God has created. Let's go a little bit further. Did God actually say that the gospel is all about getting what you want? No, he did not. Isn't isn't the gospel that I give my life to Jesus and life will be a bed of roses and I can have whatever I want? No, he did not. Isn't the gospel, didn't God actually say that if I have enough faith, I can claim that new Mercedes Benz or I can... No, he did not. Here's what God said. Jesus said, Bonhoeffer makes it clear. Jesus bids a man come and die. Jesus said, anyone that comes after me must take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like a bed of roses. Did God actually say, and what the enemy now does, and the ploy of the enemy hasn't changed, is I'm going to twist God's word. Hasn't changed in thousands of years. We'll twist it from behind pulpits. We'll twist it on CNN. We'll twist it wherever we can. 
We will twist God's word. But the enemy's actually done something profound here, which he is still doing today inside and outside of churches. Let me, let me read to you some, some quick sentences from chapter 2 and see if you can pick up the difference. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded. Verse 18, then the Lord God said. Notice something different when he comes to Eve. The enemy says to Eve, did God actually say? The difference is there's no capital letters Lord before God. In the Hebrew, they have a word that the translators got to. And the translators said, you know what? We don't know what to do with this word. You know what it means. It means something very deep and very personal for you, but we don't know what to do with it. So every time we hit this in the Bible, we're going to put the Lord God. And that word there is, please forgive me if I don't pronounce this correctly, is the word Yahweh. It's the name of God. And when, the, and when the Hebrews saw Yahweh, they saw a deep, personal, intimate God. It's, it's our God. And what the enemy does is he takes God from right here and puts him all the way out there. Now it's not Yahweh. Now it's not our God. Now it's the God. It's some, some God that's far away. That's what the enemy does. It is devaluing God. If I can devalue If he can lessen the value of God in the churches, they might just preach whatever they want. They might accept whatever they want. If we can devalue the name of God amongst secular society, have a look at what happens now. We'll marry, we'll call marriage whatever we want to call marriage. We will will institute whatever policies we like. We'll give people this this euthanasia, so they can opt out whenever they want. Here's a, here's a friendly fact, friends. Most people that take advantage of voluntary euthanasia are not elderly at all and are not terminally ill. In the Netherlands, it was a girl, 22 years of age, with mental illness that said, I've had enough, I'm out. Did God actually say we should value life? Yes, he did. The enemy twists... The word of God. But note what, what happens next. Let's, let's keep reading on. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, she, she understood what was going on here. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, questioning the word of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And they were, and you will be like God, not a chance, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw, when the woman saw, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to be desired. Notice what the enemy does here. Many people say that the first 11 chapters in particular, the verse, first few chapters of Genesis are actually poetic. I don't know if you can really make that case. Far more history in the first few chapters of Genesis, but it's interesting how apple could be used figuratively. But here's, whether it's figurative or not, here's what's going on. See how the enemy appeals to the intellect. 
and fondles and plays the strings of the emotions. This is why, this is why we can't build our, our experience of God upon emotions because uh, we have, emotions are like guitar strings. You strum them hard enough and they'll break. And when they do, you're left with nothing. And that's why we have emotional hype sometimes in churches and it fizzes out and it causes massive destruction because the strings break and there's no foundation underneath. Does that mean we can't physically experience God? No, that's not, that's not what I mean at all. I just mean if that's the only basis by which you experience and know God, then when those strings break, you're in a lot of trouble. But he plays upon the strings of the emotions. He's, he's appealing to the intellect. And then let's read what happens. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He didn't even ask any questions. At least the woman went through a bit of a conversation first. He's just like, yeah, okay, no dramas. Didn't ask any questions at all. Did anyone pick up what what Eve's number one problem was? Did anybody pick up the fact that before an, an apple even touched her lips, she'd already eaten the fruit? Did anybody realise that the mistake that Eve made was when she decided to have a conversation in the first place? Hold, stop the bus. You're in the garden with Adam and God. And a serpent turns up. What are you even doing talking to him? What are you even doing negotiating with him? I want to give everybody here as much help as I can this morning. If you're struggling with areas in your life, if you're struggling and you're defeated with sin, then I want to help you and I want to encourage you to change your conversation. Change who it is that you're talking to. Change who and what it is you're allowing to speak to you. That's why when God comes to Joshua, who's about to lead Israel into the promised land, he makes no mistake. Joshua, you need to change your conversation. What does it look like? You will meditate on my law day and night. Do not let it depart from your lips. You need to change your conversation. I I want to encourage people here, if you change your conversation, you may be able to change the outlook. The problem with Eve was she ate the fruit long before an apple touched her lips. She was already engaging in a conversation. She was already shifting reliance. Did God really say? That's an interesting question. Next thing you know. Okay, friends, we're going to move on to an important word. Christ has absolutely redeemed us, but you absolutely may not, under any circumstances, turn up to church in this condition. If it comes. Naked. You are allowed to be naked before the eyes of the Lord, but you are not allowed to be naked before the eyes of us all. (laughs) But that word naked there is speaking about shame. They they all of a sudden become, and they realise that we have imperfections because shame comes when we are uncomfortable with who we are. And have a look at what happens with what people do with the word shame today. We are uncomfortable with who we are, so today I'm going to be a lady. Or today I'm going to be a man. We think this has changed. We think these things are all new under the sun. Have a look at what happened under Rome. Nero castrated his servant so that he could marry it. Shame. Shame is... 
being uncomfortable with who we are and being uncomfortable in the presence of others. Shame is also being uncomfortable before God. Living unashamed means I'm comfortable with who I am, imperfections and all. I know you're sitting there thinking, Pastor, you couldn't possibly have any imperfections. Yes. But let, but let me assure you, I have a couple. <laughs> Silence from the front row. <laughs> Shame destroys self-esteem, it confuses identity and it isolates its victims after a while. It keeps you out of the presence of other people, it keeps you out of the presence of God. Living unashamed means I'm not only comfortable with who I am, imperfections and all, I'm comfortable with who Jesus is. A lot of people were uncomfortable with who Jesus was when he came. 2,000 years ago, there there was an enormous amount of people. There are people today that are still very uncomfortable with who Jesus is. And it caused them to do something. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But have a look at what they do to begin with. Nothing's changed again. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here's the story about fig leaves. They're going to dry up, shrivel and rot. You're going to be left back in the same spot. Okay? But here's here's the moral of making yourself loincloths. We will fix our own shame. We will hide our own nakedness. We will cover up our own sin. Can't do it. Can't do it. There is, however, enormous hope that's coming. You can't make loincloths for yourself. You can't cover your own shame. You can't remove your own nakedness. But it it makes people do something. makes them hide themselves. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Notice that sin enters creation. Notice God didn't go anywhere. Nothing changes for God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Here's a very profound truth that that highlights. You can be in the Garden of Eden and hiding in the bushes. There are people in this room, I have no doubt, that are hiding in the bushes. You have that you know, everybody's, everybody, I would say, has that tree in their garden. It's different for every one of us. But every one of us have that tree that we just want to keep possession of and we just want to keep it in the garden and we just don't want... Here's a question. I haven't got a biblical answer for it, but I, I often ponder this. God gives man the garden and he says, you can't eat of that one tree. I wonder if Adam had said to God, take that tree out of the garden... I wonder if God would have taken it out. My vote is yes. Still made a choice by his own free will. The reason I say yes is Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, didn't say, save us from temptation. No, no he said, don't even lead us there in the first place. Lead us not into temptation. Keep us from temptation. Keep us from having those conversations. Keep us from being polluted. Because it causes you to hide yourself. There are people here and there are people filling churches that are hiding themselves from the presence of God. 
because we have that unreserved, unrepented sin in our life. It will pull you down. We think that holiness is the way to God. This is what religion does. Religion says, I've got to be holy so that I can reach God. Holiness is the way to God. No, 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 no. Jesus is the way to holiness. Holiness is less about what you no longer do and all about who you live in close proximity to. Read the Old Testament. When God comes near something, what do you say to Moses? I'm here, dude, so this is holy ground now. Where God is, is holy. And sin will keep you hiding in the bushes. God asks a very important question. I believe he's asking people this question here today. Let's, let's read on. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called, and he's calling today, to the man and said to him, where are you? Notice we've gone back to the Lord God said. The Lord God called and said, where are you? And we've covered this before, but at the moment that God asks a question, he's not looking for an answer here. It's not like all of a sudden God's come down and gone, hang on a second, where did I put those two? That's not, that's not what's happened here. Whenever God questions somebody, and we heard another question today over the ties message, whenever, when Jesus was asking Peter the question, who do you say that I am? He doesn't need affirmation. Jesus isn't looking for you to, to fluff his pillow. And pump, up, pump him up. Peter, I want you to know who I am. That's, that's what the problem, this is what's going on. And, and, and when God's asking Adam, where are you? He doesn't, he's not trying to find Adam. He wants Adam to know where he is. Adam, I want you to know where you are. What are you doing in the bushes? What's changed? What's different, Adam? Have a listen to what Adam says. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Fear will drive you out of the presence of God. I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. God asked him another question. He said, who told you you were naked? Probing the heart, probing the heart, probing the hearts. Where are you and who told you that you were naked? Everybody here knows what happens next. There's a whole, these guys here, Adam and Eve, they should have played AFL football, man. But these guys have got some of the slickest handballs I've seen. Straight away, when God begins to question them, the man says, well, the wife, she, she brought me the apple, dude. And Eve goes, well, no, 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 hang on. You know the only one that doesn't do any handballing here is the serpent, the enemy? Doesn't do any handballing. It stops with him. But Adam goes, she's to blame. Eve goes, the serpent's to blame. And at the end of the day, they were both to blame. Before anybody blames the lady in the situation here, there's an enormous breakdown. God actually comes to Adam. God actually gives the commandment to Adam. There's a failure here on Adam's part to effectively pastor his wife. What was she doing alone? I 
We live in a society today that should, everybody should be playing AFL football. You watch the news for five minutes, you watch, you watch any kind of documentary and they put somebody on, on show and go, right, what about this? No, nah, he did it, he did it, she did it, they did it. It was, because of, it was because of the environment that I grew up in. It was because of, it was because of my mum and my dad. Okay, I understand. Some people need prayer and we need to deal with things of the past. But friends, I can tell you now the responsibility. God is quite clear here, right from the garden. You are going to answer responsibly for yourself. You are not going to be able to stand before him and blame your mum or blame your dad or blame the government or blame anybody apart from yourself. But if you're sitting here today and thinking, I wonder what hope there is, because to begin with, we all find ourselves outside of the presence of God. Let's let's read what happens in the end. We'll start at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord God made, and right here in the garden, right after everything has just happened, we can see echoes of redemption straight away. Why? Because the only thing that was going to effectively cover their nakedness was if blood was shed. What a profound scripture. J.I. Packer says, one of the most profound scriptures I read is that his blood was shed before the foundation of the world. Before God even breathed life into Adam's nostrils, Jesus is saying, I'm going to have to walk up that hill. And the hope for every single person, whether you find yourself outside of the garden, whether you find yourself in the garden but hiding in the bushes, wherever you find yourself, here is enormously good news. Somebody walked up the hill for you. When you couldn't cover your shame, when you couldn't remove your sin, just like God back in the garden, somebody said, I'll give them robes so that they can stand before you. Genesis chapter 4 says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. Revelations chapter 3 verse 20, Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. I've got a question for everybody in this room. Who are you going to let in? None of us are perfect. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right. That's why Hebrews says we have a high priest. That's why, we, that's why uh, the first epistle of John in chapter 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He keeps forgiving us. He keeps forgiving us. He keeps forgiving us. We keep making a mess of the robes and he says, I'll come here, I'll give you some new ones. You know, when, you, when your kids are like two or three and you put them in their Sunday best... You get them dressed up. You've just bought them all these new clothes. They run out the front door. They trip over. They slide across the front lawn because in Tasmania, it's usually about an inch deep in water. They slide across the front lawn. They get up. They're laughing. What do we say? Come inside. I'm going to belt you black and blue. No, that's not what we say. (laughs) Come inside. I've got some more clothes for you. And for every one of us in this room, this is enormously good news because we do slip, we do fall, we do stumble. And just like that two-year-old kid, we do go flying across the front lawn. And Jesus is standing there saying, come on, I've got some more robes. 
Let's clean you up. Because the truth is, we're all a mess. That's what Paul's been saying in Romans. You guys are all a mess. You Pharisees, you're a mess. Religious atheists, people who, with their mouth, profess the existence of God, but live a life that says, I don't need him. That's a religious atheist. That's a Pharisee. It's somebody that says, I can swim to New Zealand all on my own. Jesus says, you don't have to. You don't have to live with shame anymore. Everybody in this room has made mistakes. You don't have to live under shame anymore. You don't have to live under guilt anymore. You don't have to hide in the bushes another day. Not another day. You don't have to hide there anymore. Why? Because this word sin, dealt with. So many people say that the enemy has all the power. We have, we have two ends of the scale here. First end of the scale is that the enemy has all the power and we can't do anything about it. The other end of the scale is the enemy doesn't have any power. And both of them are wrong. The book of Job clearly tells me that the enemy, God sets his parameters. You can go so far but no further. And the rest of the Bible tells me the enemy only has influence in our lives when we open the door to him when we engage in conversations that we shouldn't engage in, when we shift our trust and reliance away from the word of God, have a look at what happens now. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe of you because there isn't a single person in this room that deserved you to hang on the cross for us. We don't deserve one drop of that blood. But it is only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us. We can't make loincloths for ourselves, Jesus. You have made robes of righteousness for every one of us. Jesus, we are thankful and we worship and we glorify your wonderful name today. Thank you that we don't have to live at distance. Thank you, Lord God, that you have called us and brought us near. I pray today, Lord, that every person would hear you calling them, where are you? Where are you? Lord God, to this end we pray, Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts and in our lives. In your wonderful name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.